This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. I'm very, I'm actually very proud that I got here this morning. There was a tree down on the road near my house. You do live in the sticks. I do live in the sticks. That's true. Do you know something Crazy funny? storm. I've, I've got these faulty headphones on today, mm. and only one ear's been working. Yeah. But your voice... Yeah. Just pop the other one back on. Oh, see, I'm magic. I am magic. It was a shrill sound. <laughs> That's it. Hope you are sure. now deaf as well. Yeah, but, yeah, you know. it's, uh, the other ear's gone. Now, so. <laughs> yeah, and Dr. Catherine, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you in the studio. Thank you. It's great to be here this morning. I'm in mourning. Oh, I know. I know. Come on. Spock. Yep. Yeah. Well, Leonard Nimoy is my favorite. Yes, well, sorry. I know, I know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, I'll play yeah. a little tribute to him later. But, yeah. Uh, it's sad. It it's is sad. really sad. And it's he sad. did so much. I must admit, personally, I didn't know a huge amount about him, but I did some reading. Peasant. I know. <laughs> I know, and I'm a scientist. Surely I, I should be a Trekkie. But um, I did some reading on him, and he was an amazing man. He yeah. really was. Yep. And, yeah, we very sadly missed by a lot of people. Yes. And uh, anyway, we will talk a bit more about that later. I'll talk a bit about that as well. But we're going to jump into some news. We have three amazing guests today, folks, too. So um, hang around for those. Um, we're trying to get three guests a week. Mm-hmm. I like three guests. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, you know, send me a Twitter tweet or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Liv's not here, so she can't, <laughs> she can't correct me. She, she would have, she's grimacing <laughs> she at home. She slapped me over the back of the head by now. Um, if you hate the idea of three guests, <laughs> you know, I like it. I think it's good. More, more, uh, more stuff coming into the room. That's it. They have to listen to us less, so it's a, it's a win-win situation, really. We're <laughs> <laughs> <Or> all involved. <laughs> Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Well, I, I got very um, interested in this story that came up about how gold gets to the part of the earth where we can actually mine it. So um, this is obviously quite interesting in Australia because we do a lot of mining. And I never really understood how this actually works, but valuable metals like gold, copper and platinum actually form right down deep in the Earth's core. And to get up closer to the Earth's crust is, has been something that we haven't really known in the past how that happens. And so what these scientists have actually come up with, and this was um, led by Professor James Mungle in the University of Toronto, is they have done some research looking at how those precious metals actually move up. And what they've found is that those sorts of materials actually combo- uh, combine sorry, and, and bind to molten iron sulphide down deep in, in the Earth's core. And we've always thought that... Um, so sulphide is, is quite a heavy element, and so mm-hmm. it always had been thought that that would sort of stay quite deep. But what they've now found out is that it actually will rise with vapour. So if the pretty way to think about this really is that gold and copper and platinum actually bind to this sulphide, and then they go up with gas vapours and they move through through the Earth's crust in that way. And the reason is there's a couple of reasons that's interesting. One being that it gives more information about where we might find more of these deposits because they can look at you know, areas and, and, and predict where those vapours may have risen. But the thing that I really liked about this is that they think this might actually help predict why some animals have gone extinct. And so this kind of seems like quite a big jump. But what they have um, done is actually looked at what happens with nickel. 
And so they're now doing some research into whether nickel actually can travel via these gas bubbles as well. And if it's the case, they believe that that actually might be why uh, the, let me just get this correct, the Permian Triassic extinction event might have happened. No way. I know. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know it, which is probably... 0.5% of the people, obviously everyone knows about that. I had to look it up. Um, but this basically was the, the big extinction event. It was uh, over 250 million years ago, and it killed off 96% of the marine life in the world and 70% of the terrestrial life. And the theory now is that what would have happened is that the nickel actually would have risen up and then been you know, absorbed into the atmosphere and then obviously comes back down via the rain. The actual bacteria that cause that extinction event basically multiply more rapidly if mm. they have access to that. So that's the theory, is, is that it's to do with these gas vapours under the Earth's core that wow. might have actually caused that extinction event. We know so little. I know. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. And it's amazing to think that, you know, something that sort of seems like quite basic science as to how metals move around actually could be the reason mm. that we had an extinction event mm. like that. Amazing. Mm. And uh, now, in your uh, ophthalmologic, uh, no, optometry type world, yeah. How, have you been coping with this dress, the dress debacle? The dress saga. Do you know I'm very proud of myself because I've managed to see it in both colours, both so, sets of colours. So I can only see the gold. Do you know what's life. freaking me out is I saw it as blue, blue, black first, yep. Yep, yep. and then the next day mm. after Leonard Nimoy died. Yes. Because there was some person who put a whack job idea that it was emotionally driven. <laughs> it changed colour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then later that day I saw it again. Mm back in the original colours, and I can't go back, and it's yeah. freaking me out. It, it is actually, it's a fascinating thing. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It, you, I mean, I'm sure you probably read, most people probably have read the um, the theory behind mm. it. It's mm. this whole idea of colour constancy. Mm. So when we see colour, it's just light reflected off objects. So if you're in a different room, that colour is actually different. Mm. But our brains don't see that. Our brains go, okay, that tomato yeah. is always red. doesn't matter yeah. if I'm in a dark room or in yeah, a sun room. Yeah, you always... So you compensate. Because yeah. uh, the best example I heard was a white sheet of paper mm. where you, if you take it out on a sunny day mm. where most of the light, you know, depending on where you're standing, is the blue coming from, yep. from the, the atmosphere. Yep. Um, it, it's white to you. Yeah. Whereas if you take it inside and it's a very different light source, yep. it's still white, still white to you. Yeah. And so you, you're actually compensating. And because your brain doesn't know what the light source is mm. in this case... Mm. It can do either, yeah. and just yeah, randomly between people. It is fascinating. You put, I don't know if you guys saw, but um, there's actually they've done some computer modelling mm. of it, and they've used you know Adobe Photoshop and things, and you know they they can get answers from that. But that's not what humans see. You know, no, it's quite no. different to our yeah. perception. Yeah. I find this quite interesting because it's gone viral online mm. across Twitter and Facebook and lots of social media, and they've said that the sales of this particular yeah, dress yeah. have just skyrocketed <laughs> because uh, people want to get get a hold of it. Well, it's it was funny looking at. I was looking at new science us this morning and, mm. there, and I clicked on that article because I was trying to get it to go back to gold and white for myself. Yeah. <laughs> Still failing. And at the top, there was one of the advertising banners for a dress shop. That's and I thought, hilarious. I've never seen that before on the New Scientist. Yeah, yeah, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I thought, Dr. Lauren, you and I, because, mm-hmm. you know, with my marketing skills and your um, True. other skills, Something skills. Um, <laughs> some skills, um, we could produce uh, like some clothing yeah. that had a message on it. And so when you go into a bar, it either says, I want to go home with you or <laughs> piss off your dirty pig. And so... And, and you'd have to be the right sort of person to yeah. read it. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I've actually always wanted to like do optical <laughs> illusion clothes because there's yep. so many optical illusions out there that you know right. you can. There you go, done. We're, 
We're in, the P- we're in the PG time slot, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> uh, Dr. Catherine, what do you got for us? I have some research uh, that was released this week, published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, about peanut allergies for children. And the, this research has really challenged uh, our clinical practice at the moment and challenged the way we have dealt with a sort of preventing peanut allergies amongst children which is a big issue and and, Mm. this is a life-threatening condition. Mm. So this study was a randomised control trial, included over 600 children and children were randomly allocated by chance to either be exposed to peanuts and regularly eat sort of peanut substance uh, over the first five years of their life or they were allocated to avoid peanuts altogether, Mm. which is generally sort of our standard practice at the Mm. moment. Mm. The findings are really interesting though in that the children who did eat peanuts or it's in a peanut substance, even though they were high risk of allergies, they actually had a less occurrence of allergies five years down the track right. than those that avoided peanuts. Mm. So the kick sort of kickstarting their immune system to understand this is something you're going to have to deal mm. with. Quite potentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, and, and maybe building up a protection to that allergy over the time, yeah. mm. uh, over five years. And the children were children who were already at risk of developing mm. a peanut mm-hmm. allergy, so um, you know, it, it's a risky group to be working with, but certainly it may be that by sort of eating, and they, they sort of they ate peanuts regularly three times a week over the first five years of life, so mm. a sustained consumption of that mm. may have built up a protective effect. It, it's extraordinary because the, that standard advice is Mm. well you know look don't give them any peanuts until Mm. they're older because they'll be better able to cope with Mm. it if Mm. they had a anaphylactic reaction to it because they're old that won't kill them but actually that could be the worst thing Mm. you could possibly do absolutely and that may actually explain why that because that's been the message over the last 10 years to avoid Mm. peanuts Yet the rates of peanut allergies are rising, so mm. maybe by avoiding it, that's that's mm. occurring, you know, causing the um, the rates to rise. There, there was actually another really interesting story in this week about peanut allergies as well. I don't know if you guys saw it, but they're um, looking at the, g- the genetic um, components mm. of, of peanut allergy, and they actually found that there's two genes on chromosome six that can uh, account for about twenty percent of peanut allergies. Wow. And it's actually I, I really found it very fascinating that these two studies came out in the same week mm. because one saying, well, if there is a genetic cause but we can obviously from from what Catherine, dr yeah. Catherine's talking about you know we can actually change that from environmental so it gets that whole epigenetics you mm, know mm. the environment genome interactions it's very it's, fascinating it's, it's amazing stuff and we had um we had uh, katie allen from the mm. middle children's research institute in here last year talking about mm. this research in its early phases yeah. and it seemed very exciting not just for peanuts but eggs and other allergens mm, as well absolutely and, and this may be able to transcribe over to egg allergies mm, and other allergies mm. and um i mean maybe the next research is taking that 20% with that gene who are susceptible to yeah. it and then giving gradual exposure yep. hopefully it would prevent the allergy yeah, yeah. It's, a, it, it's a big issue mm. uh, now speaking of big issues I have to say I was very excited or somewhat sceptical <laughs> Those two do tend to go together with me. <laughs> if I get too excited, there's usually a healthy dose of scepticism. <laughs> but apparently we're going to be ready for head transplants by 2017. Wow. <laughs> How good's that? Um, How scary is that? Now this is, uh, it's being, it was proposed in uh, 2013 by Sergio Canavera from the Turin Advanced Neuromodulation Group in Italy, and he is going to be um, presenting this at an upcoming conference in the coming weeks. Um, it's the annual conference of the American Academy of neurological and orthopedic surgeons in Annapolis, uh, Maryland in June. And he's proposing that uh, we have the technology right now and that we should be able to do this within uh, just a few years. So this is literally taking the entire head, the skull, everything, and just... Now, I mean... (laughs) 
So, no, we're not swapping. <laughs> I know you want to, but we're not. Um, yeah, that'd be so We're funny. not swapping. Uh, now, the, the, the interesting thing, of course, is that the, the, big, the big ticket item here is the... Um, the spinal cord mm-hmm. and you know being able to sever that effectively yeah. and then refuse a, a spinal cord together now this is something that you know has you know mm. really got people talking about mm. whether this is even possible to do if you did it would it be successful mm. and of course there's a lot of ethical um, discussions going mm. on around this as when would you do this what sort of yeah. scenario would it take for a person to do this now you know if you have something like motor neuron disease or mm. you know some of these various um, problems that there are a whole range of issues around mm. the body where you could say okay um, you know, above the neck this person's perfectly normal yeah, you know, yep. below the neck they can't function in any way yep. shape or form you could you do this for those people and I think mm. that's where it's leading mm. I mean there's a lot there are a lot of surgeons who've come out and said look this is never going to be possible mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a few. You'd be surprised to know there's actually been a few head transplants. Really, really. They're dogs and monkeys, <laughs> yeah. and suffice it to say, they didn't last longer than about a week. No, in most cases, yeah. a few days. So th- there's not really. I mean, that being said, the primary reasons for those deaths were around um, immune response okay. so okay. the rejection of the foreign tissue mm-hmm. on the transplanted body mm-hmm. so that is something that today we could probably deal mm-hmm. with because mm-hmm. we do deal with that in, in you know many many surgical mm-hmm. procedures um but it, it's it's interesting mm-hmm. it'll be one of those watch this space thing and um i think uh well pro- my, my money mm. we will have dudes on mars before we transplant ahead <laughs> yeah. probably likely i'm putting it on air because people can call <laughs> me on it if i'm wrong but i think we will have dudes and do that um, <laughs> Now, of course, there's the Mars One program, you know, they're trying to get up, yep. where you can send some people there, one-way ticket. I'm putting together the, a list. The reality TV show, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm putting mm-hmm. together a list of people who I would like to send there one way. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's a bit long at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've only got 100 contestants, and I've got about 3,000 people. Yeah, right. So don't worry, Dr. Lauren. I'm only number 400. <laughs> <laughs> you're not on the list, you're okay. Um, now, um, it was a tragic day over the last uh, couple of days, as uh, Leonard Nimoy, mm. if you haven't heard, folks, I'm sure you have but he died and for many scientists um he has been quite a, him and his character and, and and what that represented has been quite an inspiration to to a lot of scientists over the years and it was great to see nasa doing so many tributes mm. and showing old photographs of of the the star trek bridge crew um actors mm. standing out the front of the enterprise as in the first space shuttle mm. that nasa rolled out of their um of their construction site mm. so uh, it's it's been a, it's a it's a heavy weekend i think for a lot yeah. of scientists who've had their um one of their childhood heroes mm. um lost um of course that you know the saga goes on there's new mm. movies and so forth and, and a great new um person playing the character in a mm. great way it's always nice to have the replacement before the original is yeah, gone i think definitely. but um but yeah it's it, it's mm. it's one of those things so anyway i'm going to play a little bit of a tribute to uh, leonard demo right now and uh just last rest 30 seconds for you non-Star Trek, uh, Star Trek haters. <laughs> you terrible. <laughs> um, and then we will uh, go to a track and we'll get our first uh, guest coming in in just a moment. So this is just something I found over the, just over the last few days. Three, triple, ah. Uh, we're back. Dr. Lauren is laughing her butt off at me because mm-hmm. I used the word tweet in a sentence. Mm-hmm. But it was just the emphasis of tweet. It was the tweet. I know oh. what that word means. Oh, yeah. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> now, we're joined in the studio by Jackie Young. She's the Reserve Officer down at the Mount Rothwell Biodiversity Interpreter. 
Interpretation Centre. Have I got that yeah, all right, Jackie? Yes, you have. It's a mouthful. It sure is. Um, now, tell us a bit first about Mount Rothwell, because not everyone will know where it is. It's down near um, sort of Pass Point Cork. You keep driving, you get to um, Little River. Little River. Yeah. And, wh- I mean, what is the, um, the centre there exactly? Yeah, so Mount Rothwell is a private conservation reserve. Um, we're about a 1,000 acres, and um, we're a fully fenced reserve. So... Um, we uh, have an 11-kilometre predator-proof fence. Mm-hmm. We check it daily. It's electric, um, and we maintain the fence. Um, since we started, we removed cats and foxes from the property. Yeah. Um, we thought we got rid of all the rabbits, didn't quite get rid of all the rabbits. Um, and what we've been able to do is reintroduce threatened species that are endemic to the area. Okay. Um, now, now t- tell us a bit about the fence, because when, when you talk about rabbits and foxes and cats, mm. I, I mean, most of the cats I know are pretty, climb a fence. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. And, now, and you say it's electric, but, you know, they're also pretty stupid, so, you know, they'll take a small shock and say, oh, well, I'm over. Um, what, I mean, what sort of, how high, is this a high fence? Yeah. Is it dug in? I mean, obviously for the rabbits it must be dug in to some degree. No, we've no? got... Um, so there's a, a one foot skirting mm-hmm. on the either side of the fence. Yep. Um, it's six foot in height and it's got an overhang over the top. Okay. There's three electric wires, two on the outside, one on the inside. And so what that does is it helps the animals on the inside stay on the inside. Um, and then for anything trying to get in from outside, um, there's a couple of deterrents mm. there. And, and describe the environment inside the fence. Is it sort of uh, foresty? Is it Australian bushland? I mean, what sort of environment? Are you preserving? Yeah, we've got um, three threatened ecosystems actually, or vegetation communities. We've got um, the basalt plains grasslands, which mm-hmm. are a critically endangered um, vegetation community, um, particularly in Victoria. Well, yeah. it's recognised under the um, Environment Protection, Biodiversity and Conservation Act, I think it is, yep. EPVC Act. Um, and there's less than 1% of that that remains. Um, and so we have a pretty good. Um, proportion of it and uh, so we try and protect that. Uh, we also have granitic um, outcrops so we are located at the northern tip of the Yu Yangs Ranges so we do have rocky outcrops right, there. Yeah. Um, we've also got an old growth woodland which is uh, dominated by red box and it's really unique to the area. It's where we're located uh, a lot of the land was cleared for um, farming and agricultural pursuits so um, our woodland predates European history which is mm. uh, pretty extraordinary on the mm. basalt plain I've got to say. Yeah. yeah. Now, in terms of when you talk about threatened species, we're not just talking about animal species here, are we? I mean, there must be uh, the biodiversity of the plant life and that there. You know, there's all sorts of weed species in that that must threaten you guys as well. Oh, gosh. So, <laughs> Sore point. Yes, there are. Um, so when we started, we had approximately about a 90% cover of serrated tussock throughout the mm. basalt plains mm. grassland. It's um, recognised as one of the weeds of national significance. Um, it's pretty um, prolific right throughout the basalt plains. Um, it was about 90% cover and we're now down to less than 10%, well, okay. probably more, less li- more like less than 5% yep. cover of um, serrated tussock. So we have a dedicated team of volunteers mm-hmm. that do all of the weed control right. um, and they are just extraordinary. So I was going to ask you, this is literally people pulling them out, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. do use herbicide, mm-hmm. but it is uh, just dedicated team who mm. go out year after year. They've um, they've been coming 
coming and doing volunteering for 10, 15 years, and mm. they are just extraordinary. And this is not something they can stop when you get it all out, because presumably the, the seed base around your environment is still going yes. to be there and it's going to still yeah. keep coming in. Yeah, we do. Um, so a lot of seed dispersal is through wind, mm. and so we do get wind, um, particularly of serrated tussock, and we notice it. We see it on the fence lines, and so it's sort of relatively easy to target. Mm. Um, we can identify pretty quickly where there's hot spots. Yeah. Um, we used to have another weed, um, African boxthorn, uh, which was pretty pro- it's prolific right throughout the basalt plains, and we've managed to nearly eradicate that. Oh, we just great. get, you know, birds obviously come and yeah. disperse the berries, mm. and um, so we get uh, occasional. Um, box thorns, but it's nothing compared mm. to what it used to be. Mm. Yeah. Now, now, what about the um, the animal life? I mean, what are some of the species that you're working on there? Because you, you do have this incredible scenario where you know these these apex predators like foxes and so forth are just not not there. Yeah. So we have eighty three percent of. Uh, as the mainland population of Eastern Bard Bandicoot. Mm-hmm. So um, we've got roughly about 400, 450, maybe a bit more, mm-hmm. um, and they are free-ranging, self-sustaining right throughout the property. Mm-hmm. So we don't feed them, we don't water them, we don't do anything, we don't worm them, we don't flea-treat them or mm-hmm. anything like that, and they are just free-ranging across the property. So um, what we do is we've removed the threats, We've restored the habitat and reintroduced the species and they do the rest themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's been really successful um, to the point where we're now expanding to a second site out at um, Western Victoria at a place called um, Don Donnell, Don Donnell, sorry, near Hamilton out that way Mm -hmm. and um, it's double the size of Mount Rothwell so um, it will be able to hold a much larger population of Eastern Bard Bandicoot. And so you're returning them to home there aren't you because my understanding is they we had Ben on last week from Zeus Victoria and he talked about the fact that they were found in a rubbish or something in Hamilton yeah Yeah, so they were thought to be extinct and Mm. then they were found they were rediscovered in the tip so they're pretty um, uh, I guess resourceful as Mm. far as and you know and they are adaptable to a certain extent what they're not adaptable to is predators uh, introduced predators yeah unnatural predators Mm. to the environment yeah so, Jackie, you were mentioning that you, uh, you guys tried to get rid of all the rabbits before you used yeah. to sell it off and, you, and they've come back. Is that now to a point where there's as many rabbits as there are other species? How, how bad is the rabbit problem? Um, oh, jeez, we had to talk about the rabbits. Sorry. Okay, no, that's okay. <laughs> so the rabbit population far exceeds mm. everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, they are incredibly detrimental to mm-hmm. the environment and they cause significant erosion. They uh, overgraze all of the grasses, so then therefore there's no, not enough uh, nesting material for mm-hmm. the bandicoots and things like that. So we recognise this as a problem and we are undertaking a number of um, projects at the moment to eradicate mm. rabbits from the property. So we're starting in the basalt plains because that's where their overgrazing mm. is um, of significant impact and threat to our threatened species. Mm-hmm. And we've, um, we're already starting, just after a month's work, we've already started seeing some regrowth, um, which is just extraordinary. So, mm. um, But it's with the support of our volunteers again. Mm. Uh, we've also got some kids doing work for the Dole program with us, right. which has been really successful. Yeah. Um, and for their menu, you. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. They're actually seeing the results of um, mm. their work as mm. well, 
which yeah. has been really positive for them. And also um, our volunteers are out there constantly. Mm. Um, yeah, so we can't use poison on site. Um, that's yeah. just an absolute no. So we do have to think a little bit laterally about how mm. we manage the rabbit population. That's a tricky one. Mm. Now, um, you're also looking at a tiger quoll release in looking the near future? Yep. Did. Oh, you did it? Did it. Jeez, I'm yeah. out of date. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Tell um, us about that. In June last year, so we recognised the rabbits um, and also brush-tailed possums were having significant impact on the um, the other population, well, particularly the vegetation. So rabbits were overgrazing all of the grasses and possums were starting to impact the canopy cover mm. of our old, um, old growth woodland. Um, we don't have an apex predator within uh, that is big enough to take one of those down. We do have um, Australia's only free-ranging population of eastern quoll, but they're much smaller than a tiger quoll, mm. um, and they'll take down a, a sick rabbit or sick animals, but they won't um, take it down a healthy adult. So we needed to introduce an apex predator that would help balance the population, and so we released as a trial uh, three male tiger quolls. Uh, we had not big enough to support a breeding population, so we just restricted it to three. Um, we're very nervous about what the impact might be on our threatened species um, populations, because obviously mm. um, they don't know that we're in a threatened species management mm. yeah. um, program. Eat what they can find kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. But we had, we're pretty confident that they would target rabbits and possums. And so we released these three males that came from Serendip Sanctuary and we put radio collars on them uh, and then we tracked them every day for months mm. and months and we picked up all their scats and the students of Gordon Tafe um, Conservation and Land Management uh, had much fun sifting through scats and doing hair analysis <laughs> for us. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it was great fun and we found that they were definitely only predating on rabbit and possum mm. primarily. We did find one kangaroo hair and a uh, Rufus Betong here, um, but that could have been through scavenging yep. or yep. anything. So uh, the fact that the majority of hares that we found were rabbit and possum um, yeah. was awesome. And mm. it's now been, well, that was at the end of June last year. It's now been um, a, a number of months, nearly a year, and we're not seeing any impact on the threatened species. That's so fantastic. They co-evolved. So. Well, Jackie, it's great work you're doing down there, and I think uh, anyone travelling down to the Avalon Air Show, you know, and you're going or you're going past that way, um, Little River, just think that there is this amazing sanctuary down there, and some some of our most threatened species are only alive in the world in that little. It's about the size of the CBD of Melbourne, isn't it? It's not huge. Yeah, I mean, it's only a thousand acres. Yeah. So. so if you've got a few billion bucks out there, you could also buy some more land for Jackie. That'd help, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yep. Jackie Young, Reserve Officer at the Mount Rothwell Biodiversity Interpretation Centre. Thank. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Three triple R. Now, we're joined in the studio by our second guest for today. It's Thomas McCoy. He's from the School of Chemistry at Monash University. Welcome, Thomas. How are you going? Good, thanks. Now, you work um, on graphite. Now, most people are sort of aware of graphite from the fact that, you know, they're used to having it in their pencils, I, su- I yeah. suppose. Um, but, you know, the last few years with graphene and the Nobel Prize around graphene, there's been a lot of new stuff happening in this area. Give us a bit of a flavour of what it is about graphene that's sort of so special for you. Well, so if you think of um, graphite, as in in your number two pencil, for Mm. instance, 
that's um, actually just layers of carbon stacked mm-hmm. on top of one another. And if you're able to isolate one of those single layers, you've got graphene, and so you've got something that's ultra-thin but has an enormous surface area. Right, yep. And, yeah, it's got all these interesting conductive properties and it's ex- extremely strong mechanically. So, yeah, that's why it's, it seems mm. to have taken off. Now, now, in terms of, I mean, in terms of that, that mechanical strength, I mean, how does it compare to things like? I mean, people always compare things to diamond and steel and stuff like that. Diamond, obviously, is made of carbon as well. I mean, how strong is graphene? I mean, it's hard to imagine a single sheet of atoms, so you know, one atom thick, being strong. Yeah, well, that's just it's to do with the way that the carbon's bonded. But uh, yeah, it's it's meant to be incredibly strong, so it has a, uh, you know, incredible weight bearing potential. Hmm. You know based on the fact that it is ultra-thin, which is why it's uh, so amazing, I guess. Yeah. Now, now, you guys are using it for a very different purpose, though, and it's hard to, you know, given, given how dirty it is when it comes out of a pencil, it's mm. hard to think of it in this way, but for actually purifying water. Yeah, so uh, if you oxidise uh, graphene, you get graphene oxide, mm-hmm. and that in that process you introduce these these water-loving components to the graphene sheet and this makes it dispersible in water essentially so because it's ultra thin as well you've got this enormous surface area which in turn means you've got this enormous capacity for capturing things like toxins Mm -hmm. so that combined with the water dispersibility is why it's appealing for water treatment right so in terms of so in terms of treatment though we're not talking about i guess there's one image of sort of almost like the pool blanket where there's one big piece you put down or there's the the whole you know large quantities of this that you just dump in i mean which which are we talking about for purification of water uh, the second, the second one, one, yeah. So large quantities. So it'd be very difficult to sort of manufacture <laughs> a, a giant sheet. That bloody cool, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe one day. I'm thinking solar sails. You know, all sorts of great stuff. You could do some great stuff. Maybe with a small, small metallic cover on one side. Anyway, but we'll talk about that after the show. Um, now, so you put this stuff in, and it and does it? Are you looking for it to chemically bond to the contaminants? How do, how does it draw out the contaminants from the water? Well, so it's got these hydrophobic regions, so bits that hate water, so Mm -hmm. things that aren't really comfortable in water are likely to to stick to those regions. And it's also uh, very strongly charged. So if you've got, you know, charged particles in the water... Oppositely charged particles. That is, they're going to stick really strongly as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit of a vacuum cleaner for uh, for all this this muck. Now, of course, the the big question is: once you've done this, once you've put this stuff in the water, I mean, presumably you've got to get it out. Exactly. How do you go about that? Yeah, so that was the main focus of uh, my research project was developing an effective method for mm-hmm. you know getting it back out once you've put it in, and that was by uh, using these magnetic components. Mm-hmm. So you put the magnetic components in the water along with the graphene oxide, and uh, they should stick, in which case you can just apply an external magnet and it should pull the whole lot out. <laughs> So just big, big magnet stuff. So like, like, like the way. So I know in some mineral processing they'll use like electrodes and so forth. So electrically pull stuff out. This is this is different though. We're, we're talking about some sort of magnetic device that you put into some big vat and just yank it all out. Is it? Um, they're just actually iron oxide particles. So iron oxide being pretty much rust. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cheap stuff. Yep. And. Uh, yeah, so you put that in as, as smaller particles as you can, preferably, and so they'll uh, stick to the graphene oxide because they have an op- opposing surface charge. Right. 
Uh, and so because those parts are the, the magneto-responsive parts, they, they're stuck to the graphene sheets, then when you apply the, the external magnet, it should all come out. Mm, cool stuff. So, Tom, you were just mentioning that the iron oxide is quite cheap to, to use. How about the rest of the components of this? So to the graphene and all of those things, is it, is it a cheap way to filter water? Yes, incredibly so. So the, the graphene oxide just comes from graphite, which is, you know, abundant in nature. So, yeah, that's one of the other appealing aspects is that it's utilising really cheap materials. And, Thomas, what sort of volume of water have you tested this on? Like, could this be used in a wide-scale water treatment plan? I think it could be because it does readily disperse, so you don't need to input an awful lot of energy to get it to... Mm. Um, yeah, spread out through the water. But um, as far as what I've done, it's only been in you know small sample vials, so mm. initial stages. Yeah. <laughs> so presumably, this has um, pretty big industrial applications where some of those contaminants are pretty nasty because you know where you've got all sorts of heavy heavier elements where they do form ions, of course, which means they're presumably susceptible to this method. Is that, is that the sort of focus on trying to go for those really heavy-duty industrial processes where, to be frank, I mean, clean, cleaning them up is, is a nasty and difficult job? Yeah, that would be the ideal outcome. So particularly in industries, maybe mining, for example, mm-hmm. where you're likely to get mineral tailings in the, yep. in the water, this would be ideal for that. Mm. Well, look, Thomas, it's, it's interesting stuff, and it's great to see uh, good old carbon still coming out as one, as one of the materials. That we, who, who would have thought? <laughs> um, but we are just there's so much new stuff coming out with the uses of graphene. So good luck with this. I hope it really does um, head in the right direction. And as you say, those, those mineral tailings and the dams associated with storing them, can, I mean, there's been a lot of really serious accidents with those over the last few years. So getting, getting to a point where we can clean those up is, is great work. So good luck. Thank you. Thomas McCoy is from the School of Chemistry at Monash University. We're going to play a short track, and then we'll be back in a few moments, folks. We have another guest uh, that's more, well, the other end of the spectrum, you might say. We're talking about uh, infants, infants, little kids, you know, the little ones we make. Yep. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. We are joined in the studio now by Vera Ignatovich. How'd I go, Vera? Perfect. <laughs> Not bad. Now, Vera's from the hematology research team down at the Melbourne Children's Campus, which, if you weren't aware, focus a... Um combination of three significant entities it's the Royal Children's Hospital, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne that's often termed the Melbourne Children's Campus. Now Vera you work um, in the area of thrombosis so I think first we should talk a little bit about clots and yep. why we get these because presumably clotting is something that keeps us alive for you know most of our, our lives. Yes so, so clotting is a part of a normal process of wound healing so when people um, cut themselves when a child falls over and gets a scrape on their knee um, thrombosis is a, a normal part of the process of response um, basically preventing any blood loss from happening but mm-hmm. it is when the clots are happening for no reason at all so spontaneously or when the clots that are made to prevent any blood loss when they hang around basically that right is when we can have problems so they can uh, they can end up floating into the lungs so resulting mm. in pulmonary embolism or going into the brain which is um, results in a stroke mm. now one of the things i've always found fascinating and never known why um why it works is 
how does the body know where to locate the clot? So if I cut myself, what's happening locally that prevents this from occurring throughout the bloodstream? Why does it just happen where the cut's occurring? So uh, as a result of damage to a blood vessel, the subendothelium, so the surface underneath the main part of the vessel becomes exposed and a protein called tissue factor becomes exposed. So the body knows tissue factor is not normally around in circulation, Mm -hmm. not in large quantities anyway. So the body knows to focusing on that part and actually the platelets or the, the cell, cellular elements in blood come in and they're the first ones to kind of react and, hmm. and prevent any blood loss. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, a, yeah. a little bit off topic, but so in haemophilia then, is it, is it to do with, is there a problem with the factor? Is that why people don't clot? Yes, so there are two particular factors. It's a combination of either one or two on, or another factor, so it's mm. factor eight or factor nine that could be missing. Okay. Um, so, so that's a plasma factor, but in blood clotting, what is important is the surface of the vessel, the platelets, which are cellular elements, and also the blood clotting proteins that are floating around freely. Mm. Now, Vera, you, you work down at the Children's with regards to how we can sort of get healthy kids to actually help us understand some of this. Tell us first, why are kids of interest in terms of clotting? Do we not all clot in the same way? Uh, well, we actually don't, and not a lot of people know this. So children are much less prone to spontaneous thrombosis compared to adults. So a spontaneous meaning for no particular reason, not mm-hmm. related to surgery or anything like that. So adults are much, much more prone to thrombosis compared to children, and this, the incidence of spontaneous thrombosis increases uh, as we age. So children seem to be protected somehow. So this is healthy children. I mean, children who are hospitalized, that's a different story. They do tend to get a lot of blood clots, but healthy children children seem to be protected somehow. So they they are making blood clots when they need to. The blood clot is effective in, in terms of stopping any blood loss, but then it doesn't really hang around. So it's uh, it's lysed or it's, it's dissolved very quickly and it doesn't cause any problems. Why? <laughs> well, <laughs> this is a big question. I, mean, you know, not to, I don't want to put some kids in a blender, so yeah. we have to work out, yeah. we have to work out um, how it is that these kids uh, uh, have got this amazing ability, or, or more importantly, why we lose it. To, I mean, we, we lose a lot of things when we get older. Now, mm. Dr. Catherine's looking straight at my hair. Um, <laughs> but we do. We lose a lot of capabilities physically. Is this something that switches off like over a short period of time, or does it gradually transition you know, throughout our life? Yeah. It seems to be more of a gradual transition and we are trying to find out you know when do the changes happen so it seems to be that a lot of the are basically trying to describe the blood clotting system as almost like a football team so you have the same number of players for example in children they have the same number of players in the children's team but they're of different shapes and size compared to adults Mm -hmm. so that um, basically in children we have been researching this for the past 13 years and what we have found in is that the platelets are different so those blood cells are different Mm -hmm. in the way that they clot they react differently to different stimulants compared to adults also uh, we haven't been able to study the endothelium of course that is really hard to access but we have studied the plasma proteins and we have shown that the concentration so the amount of the proteins and also their activity is very different in children compared to adults so we are slowly uncovering the pieces of the puzzle but your question is basically a Nobel Prize winning question (laughs) you know trying to put all of those pieces together but yeah we have been working on it for 14 years and and continuing Mm, sadly I think they'll give the Nobel Prize out for the answer (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Catherine. Vera, I imagine this would be really hard to study because if you were to follow the same children through, mm. you know, childhood years and, and growing to an adult, you'd be doing research for sort of 80 years. So uh, mm. I'm sure it would be a very challenging study to design and to really understand. Yes, definitely so. Uh, not just from the from the perspective of, you know, being able to longitudinally follow, follow up uh, children and following up children who are healthy is a difficulty. It's really uh, hard to get a funding for study of mm. the healthy population. Um, so what we have done is we have a, an ability to collect blood samples from children who are coming in for elective surgery to the children's mm-hmm. hospital. Mm-hmm. So yep. children who are otherwise healthy but need either their tonsils removed or grommets placed in their ears. So we have been lucky that we have actually had access to those children because their families are happy to participate in research. So we can get anything from children who are about 30 days of age up to about 16 years of age. And we are trying to cover that age spectrum from that perspective. We're also very lucky that within the institute or the campus, we have a lot of adult volunteers who are helping us with the adult component. And then the neonatal component, we actually get blood samples from babies at the women's hospital who are perfectly healthy because of people being open to research and and seeing the value in knowing what the healthy population looks Mm. like. I'm very curious about that. I mean, the the element of getting the population involved, because it's something that, you know, when we look at what's going on at the moment in society around climate, around immunisation, there seems, you know, to some degree, there's a big portion that's withdrawing from science in, in, in a way, and I think partly that's our fault as scientists, not communicating as effectively as we could have. But you're down there, actually, and these people are... Are volunteering up their time. I mean, this is something that I wish I heard about this more in in the newspapers and so forth. Because I think it is a great um, philanthropic, uh, in, in in a way, donation from these people to be engaged. I mean, do tell us a bit about that that engagement with them because I can imagine some of them would want to know the results. You know, what what came out of this? You know, how how have I contributed? Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so I think in Australia we are generally lucky that people are open to research. Uh, a lot of the studies that we do. Are I don't think could happen in other parts of the world because people are a lot more closed off. And I think that we are lucky that people are open to research. Yes, we do need to communicate better as as scientists. I think that definitely can improve. Mm. So what we do, for example, at the women's hospital is we collect blood samples from perfectly healthy babies within 24 hours of birth. So if you can imagine, we have to approach mothers and fathers um, within 24 hours of birth when they're still tired, exhausted, and have all kinds of emotions going through, and the family is there, and, and we have to find the right time to approach them and um, we get about 20% of the people saying yes you know even if you think about it's a it's a very stressful situation mm. to mm. ask somebody that you know whether we can collect blood from their baby that otherwise otherwise doesn't need that blood sample collected um, so we are very lucky from from that perspective we we employ professional pathology collectors mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. so that that process of uh, collecting the blood is as um, less pain- painful as possible. We actually apply uh, angel cream or anesthetic gel mm-hmm. to the baby's oh, hand wow. that's great. 20 minutes mm-hmm. beforehand so they don't actually feel the needle going in. I wouldn't mind getting some of that for myself. <laughs> yeah. I don't use that for adults. I'm sure I have some in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a black market for that stuff. <laughs> but, but it is something that I think uh, yeah, getting those parents involved is fabulous. So well done on that. It's an interesting issue about uh, consent and declining into research mm. studies, and particularly healthcare and medical research studies. And I always find it amazing when people 
say no um, for any other reason other than I don't want to be involved in research because we have sort of quite well established evidence that people who are involved in research studies do better than people mm. who are not involved mm-hmm. because you've got the follow-up, you've got extra attention. So, yeah, I find it an interesting concept to um, to not be involved in less is a, you know, a good reason, and sometimes there are very good reasons, mm. um, but other than just that um, you, you don't want to be involved, it's yeah. interesting. We, we could talk about this, like, for, for quite a while, actually. <laughs> but in terms of coming going back to thrombosis, I mean, is, is this looking like something that we could... You know, it, it, it's it's hard to say that it's an illness in a sense, but of course we're losing this capacity. Is it something that we could treat and potentially reverse that decline? Is that is that the goal? Yes, that's that's the ultimate goal. But for us, you know, in terms of uh, our the understanding that we are trying to gather or to gain is from two different perspective, two different aspects. So one is the aspect of preventing thrombosis in adults. But what is more interesting to us? within our campus and also in other pediatric institutions is that we don't have a lot of evidence for a lot of the treatments that are available. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to provide evidence for children who are ill so that we can treat them because as a result of uh, the improvement in clinical practice, uh, a lot of children are surviving that otherwise would not, but um, thrombosis is a major complication of, of their survival, is one of the complications of their mm-hmm. survival. So we have to understand the healthy children so that we know how we can treat children mm-hmm. who are ill. But presumably, too, there are, there's that whole range of scenarios where we know we're putting ourselves at high risk, and the one that obviously with plane flies comes to mind straight away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whole walk around the plane thing is fine but you know if there was something that could just subtly reduce that um misfiring of our system that would that would be really valuable definitely um i mean it's hard with spontaneous thrombosis because sometimes it really comes around without any particular reason mm. so you know i think with flights you know taking uh, taking a lot of water um and i think walking around yes definitely seems to help but we don't want everybody to be panicking and thinking that they need to take a particular medication yep. at this point in time um, I mean in the, in the future if we the knowledge that we get from children can help us uh, in terms of trying to prevent spontaneous thrombosis in adults it might happen that there is a drug out there in say 10 15 years time that could assist with this mm. all the more reason to look after the kids definitely yeah. Vera look it's great having you on and uh, hope that this work continues and it really is heartening to hear about all those parents volunteering um, it's a bad volunteering the kids <laughs> but having their kids involved in this research because one day it will benefit them no doubt Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Vera Ignatovich, which I believe I got right, um, is from the Melbourne Children's Campus and working in the haematology research team down there on this important issue of blood clots and thrombosis. Uh, We're pretty much out of time. Aren't we, folks? We are. Yes. We are. It's uh, very sad. I know. Um, Dr. Lauren, thank you very much for coming. Um, <laughs> Sorry to just flippantly let your sad remarks yeah. uh, yeah, There we go. I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting hungry. Um, big weekend planned? Pleasure. Yeah, baby shower tonight. This oh. afternoon. Yes, yes. Dear me. Well, yes. good luck with that. It will be lots of fun. Yours? No. <laughs> Surprise. No, no. I'm that. sorry, Mum. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Catherine, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, it's been great to be here. We'll see you again soon. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to hang up for now. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. I know they've probably cooked you up a storm, folks. It's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure talking to you about science again today. Once again, a big loss with the death of Leonard Nimoy yesterday. So all of you scientists and otherwise out there missing him, I say get your Star Trek marathon going for the rest of Sunday because the weather that is just crap. Actually, uh, maybe it's... Um, <laughs> anyway, have a good Sunday and remember science is everywhere. We'll talk to you again next week. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.